Uh, my welcome uh, to what you've already received from Ben. My name is Paul Reese, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Charlotte Chapel. And it's great to have you uh, join us today. Well, did you watch the coronation of uh, King Charles back in May? If you did, you were one of the 400 million people who watched it from around the world. And uh, you would have seen lots of priceless treasures offered to the king, spurs, swords, scepters, a golden orb, and then St. Edward's crown. Each of them studied with sort of diamonds and uh, sapphires and rubies and stuff like that. And uh, before he received any of those things, he was uh, presented with what was described as the most valuable thing that this world affords. The most valuable thing that this world affords. If you didn't watch it, I mean, what could that be? Uh, well, the moderator of the Church of Scotland handed to him a Bible with these words, Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you're just checking things out, then consider what an amazing statement this is. Forget the golden crown, the scepters, and the swords. The Bible is the most valuable thing that this world affords. That's quite a statement, isn't it? And so my question to you is this. Do you have a Bible? Do you have this treasure? Have you read it? It is the contents of it that make it so valuable. Here is wisdom. Uh, there's saturation, isn't there, today of, of information on the internet, much of which we're not sure we can at all trust. But here is wisdom. Here's the royal law. This is the standard of morality and righteousness that stands above kings and presidents and prime ministers and dictators that should rule and govern us. An objective moral reality so that we can actually know what is what is wrong and what is right, what is, what is evil and what is good. Here are the lively oracles of God, it says. So start reading this book, and what you discover is that it's a, it's a, it's a book that starts reading you. It is lively. It is alive. It is ancient, but it is contemporary and relevant. It's like a scalpel that cuts into us, challenging us and probing our heart motivations. A book that claims it is from God. What a treasure it is. Have you read it? Are you reading it? Now what I want to do in the next 20 minutes is to give you three reasons, to give us three reasons why we should be reading the Bible. So first point this morning is because the Bible shapes our Western civilization. Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe, looks at the values of our Western society, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And he demonstrates that these values are not innate 
in every human society. They're actually fruits that come from Christianity. And such is the influence of Christianity that we're not even aware that this is the case. These are just simply the values uh, that, well, the air we breathe. Uh, Tom Holland, the historian and podcaster, made the same point in his book Dominion back in 2019, showing how Christianity is the most enduring and influential legacy of the ancient world, its emergence being the single most transformative development in Western history. And to say that the Western civilization is shaped by Christianity is to say that the West has been most profoundly shaped by the Bible. Vishal uh, Mangalwadi was born and raised in India. He studied philosophy in secular universities and in Hindu ashrams. And he published his book in 2011 entitled, The Book That Made Your World. How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. And so if you've come here uh, to the UK from places like India or China and you want to understand um, the Western mind, then the key that unlocks this is to read the most significant source book, the Bible. Because what Vishal shows is this, how the Bible basically uh, triggered the West's passion for scientific, medical, and technological advancement, how the Bible teaches human dignity and value of all people, which is uh, something profoundly different to the caste system that he witnessed growing up in India, and that significantly shaped how we treat and behave uh, as a Western society, how the Bible created fertile ground for women to find social and economic empowerment, how the Bible has uniquely equipped the West to uh, cultivate compassion, human rights, prosperity, strong families, and the transformation of education. And this book raises the same question as Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Um, can we continue to enjoy the fruits of Christianity while at the same time ignoring and attacking the roots of Christianity? Can Western values actually hold without drawing its teaching and values from the source, the Bible. And so if you're not a Christian, uh, but like the values of, of freedom, kindness, progress, and equality, but up to this point, you've never seriously read the Bible, can I urge you today that you start reading it today? It underpins all of these things. Because both Christian and non-Christian intellectuals make the same point that the Bible is the book that has most profoundly shaped Western civilization. Second reason you should read the Bible. Because the Bible reveals God and his salvation through his son. When you start reading the Bible, what is it you're going to find? Well, it's a kind of a library of books. There's actually a collection of 66 books in one volume. They're found in two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're bound together. As a whole, it was written over a period of about uh, 1,550 years, and it's an account of events in human history. Uh, go to the British Museum, and you better go there quick, because they're stealing artifacts, I hear, so get there quick. Um, but if you go there, there's a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, buy a, a little book, a guidebook, you can get it from the bookstore, through the British Museum with the Bible, 
and Brian Edwards and Clive Anderson will actually show you the key exhibits in the museum that relate to the world that we find in the Bible. Because guess what? When you dig up the world, when you go digging in the ground and look at general history and archaeology, the world that you find is a world that, that fits the description of the world that you meet in the Bible, which is to say the Bible is accounting historical events. Now, with such a large time span, it's obviously written by multiple authors, 40 different authors, they reckon, from different backgrounds and situations. And despite this great um, variety and this long period, what's striking as you read the Bible is its amazing unity and consistency. See, after King Charles was presented with the Bible, the Archbishop gave a wonderful summary statement of what the Bible says about itself. So today's talk is, uh, what does the Bible say about the Bible? Well, the Archbishop did a great job of summarizing what the Bible says about the Bible with these words. The Bible is the Word of God that reveals God and His salvation to us through His Son. Forty different human authors whose unique personality kind of shows through as you read the different uh, books within it. But all of Scripture has one ultimate author, God. As one of the New Testament letters, 2 Timothy, puts it in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. This is why the Bible has a profound unity and consistency. It is God-breathed. Just as um, my words are being carried uh, on my personal breath, uh, from my lungs flowing over my vocal cords and, and my tongue and my lips, and it's carrying a message from my brain into your ears. The Bible is God-breathed words originating in the mind of God, communicated to the authors through the breath of God's Holy Spirit, so that what they wrote down is a personal and true revelation of God to us. Um, you're just going to have to read it to sense that this is the case. Uh, the first book, Genesis, gives us the foundational truth that, that all of the universe was created by an uncreated, eternal God out of nothing by His Word. This is a God who speaks words that have power. And he created mankind, it says, male and female, in his image. Mankind's greatest achievements of beauty and science and music and art and literature and love and compassion and justice and righteousness are really just reflecting the divine nature, the divine character. And our capacity to use words to communicate and reveal ourselves to each other is a reflection of the fact that God is a personal speaking God who is fully able to reveal himself to us. Now for one illustration, let's just turn back to that first reading we heard today from Psalm 19, back in page 552. Page 552 in the Church Bible, Psalm 19. I'm just going to dip into one place to show this. So you can see the little writing under Psalm 19 for the director of music, a Psalm of David. So here's King David who composed this psalm. It's 
got a human author. And it's a meditation on the glory of God who has revealed himself. And the first bit of evidence he points to in first, the first six verses is in God's creation. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, just look at the, the night sky, the planets and stars. Look at the, at the sky during the day and see the clouds and observe the sun that rises each day and sets its way across the heavens. The, the heavens are wordless speech declaring the glory of God throughout the whole earth, David says. And then he reflects on how God reveals himself through the words of Scripture, what we have in the Bible, uh, in verses 7 to 13, and how they reflect God. You see, verse 7, because God is perfect, the law of the Lord is perfect. Because God cannot lie, then the law of the Lord is, uh, is trustworthy. Here is objective truth rooted in the character of God. God has set up the world to work in a specific way, and we can gain wisdom to know how to live well in his word as we heed the creator's instructions. Because God is holy and righteous, his, his precepts are right verse 8. They give joy to the heart that longs for truth and justice in the world. There is an objective measure of what is right and wrong. And God is glorious and so his words are radiant, it says in verse 8, enabling us to see things clearly and to make good choices of how we live. When we come to know this moral creator, then there is a good ennobling fear, verse 9 as we base our lives on his firm and righteous decrees. And that's why King Charles was presented with a Bible with those words, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes. For that reason, he was being offered the most valuable thing that the world affords, the word of God. As Psalm 19 verse 10 puts it, more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from a honeycomb. Oh my friends, we should all be reading the Bible. It's more precious than gold. I mean, we go out every day, slog our guts out to get a bit more gold, don't we? Uh, this is more precious than gold. Invest in reading it. Don't just invest in making money on the stock market. Invest in reading the Bible. This is sweeter than honey. Do you love honey? We all love honey. This is sweeter than honey. Because the Bible reveals God and his salvation. Notice from verses 11 to 13 in Psalm 19 uh, that when we understand God's righteous laws, it's like a mirror that reveals the fact that we are not righteous that we need salvation, that we need forgiveness. Look at verse 11 of Psalm 19. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults, David says. Keep your servant also from willful sins. 
May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And finally, the psalm ends with the knowledge that with God, there is a way of forgiveness and salvation. Uh, Verse 14, David has actually entered into a personal relationship with this holy God, revealed in his word, which has brought him security and salvation. Look at verse 14. May these words of my mouth, may Uh, And this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock is security, and my redeemer is salvation. Now we've just dropped into one place in the Bible, and you can see these big themes that you'll find as you read your way through the whole Bible. God is a speaking God who's revealed himself. And he's revealing the way of salvation. You see, the Bible is an unfolding story of God's dealings with his people in history. And using the biggest brushstrokes possible, in the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, you're going to read about God the creator, uh, who creates the whole world in humanity and harmony and beauty and perfection. And then very early on, you're going to read about how through rebellion and sin of the first human couple, Adam and Eve, a blessed world becomes a sin-cursed world, a broken world. And we see that today, don't we? Much beauty, much brokenness. And yet we see how God initiated a plan of salvation to bring blessing, to restore relationship with himself through the call of Abraham, the father of Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the history of Israel proves beyond doubt that we cannot save ourselves. We just can't do it. We don't live up to the standards of God. Uh, We have corrupt, rebellious hearts. But God wonderfully promises that he is going to achieve this salvation through his king, a servant king, who's going to suffer for the people and bring about salvation. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament, the last 27 books of the Bible, Show us how Jesus is the exact fulfillment of God's promises. How he is the solution to man's problem of sin and alienation from God. Jesus is the promised Christ King. And he accomplished this salvation by his own sacrificial death, uh, crucified by the Roman Empire, and by his resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus brings forgiveness and the Holy Spirit brings new life to those who put their trust in Jesus. And the more you read the Bible, and I've been reading it, I don't know, for, gosh, a long time, uh, many, many decades now, the more I read it, the more I see the wonderful way that the, it all fits together, the old and the new. Um, the Old Testament makes clear the problem, the New Testament, the solution. The Old Testament, the prophetic promises of a Savior, the New Testament, the fulfillment that Jesus is that Savior. Let me give you one illustration. Uh, On the bookstall on the way out, on the left-hand side, you'll see a little book by uh, Roger Carswell called Gorilla Christian. And I was flicking through it this week, and there was this great little section where he says this. Execution by crucifixion was devised around 300 BC, 300 years before Christ came. So that's when execution was first devised by crucifixion. 
However, writing 400 years before that date, Isaiah the prophet, and then 700 years before that date, before crucifixion was devised, King David, both Isaiah and David describe how one was coming who would die by crucifixion. Uh, their description of the forthcoming events leave the reader who knows about Jesus in no doubt that they're prophesying about his death. They not only say about how he will die, but also tell us the circumstances around the events of his death. They say his clothes would be gambled for. They would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He would die a poor man's death in the prime of his life. He would be crucified uh, between two thieves, buried in a rich man's tomb. His hands, feet, and side would be pierced, and yet his bones would not be broken. And yet, as he died, he would take the sin of the world upon himself, and they would rise from the dead after three days. These predictions are in so much detail that there are so many of them, there's no coincidence. God leaves nothing to chance. And said, God is in total control, and he's not subject to time like us. And so, through the Bible, he can speak of what will happen, and it happens. My friends, we should all be reading the Bible because the Bible shaped our Western civilization. Because, secondly, the Bible reveals about God and his salvation through his Son. And thirdly, uh, because the Bible reveals the future. See, the Bible not only correctly prophesied that uh, God would come to save his people through his king, and Jesus came in fulfillment to that, it also prophesies that this same king will return in power to be the judge of all humanity. He will come and execute God's justice against all sin and all evil in the world. There will be a day of reckoning and justice for all. Uh, whether that's those who kill babies or shoot down planes, as well as those who just lie. And the bottom line is we all lie. We all break promises. We cheat, we steal, we use and abuse other people. We live as if God was irrelevant, taking all the good stuff and, and never giving thanks, never acknowledging God. And the Bible warns us that there is a coming judgment. And it teaches us how we can be saved from that judgment, which what makes this such a precious book. You see, it's only by actually taking refuge in the king who is coming to be the judge, by rushing to him for refuge now, that I can be saved from the judgment on that final day. I can't think of any more relevant reason why we should all be reading and responding to the Bible. You see, unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we will all die. And one day we will be resurrected to stand before Jesus. And we're going to either meet him as our king and savior, the one we take refuge in, uh, or we will meet him as our judge who will pronounce God's sentence of eternal separation from his kingdom. Now, I know lots of people will mock this claim of the Bible. They did so in the earliest days of Christianity. Um, as, as the early disciples went out and preached that Jesus was the returning king who would be the judge of all people. Now turn with me to the second reading that we had today from 2 Peter. And uh, chapter 1, you'll find that on page 1,000. 
222 in the church Bibles. So Peter, one of the disciples who personally uh, knew that um, his time was um, coming to an end, so he wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were being mocked for believing the message about Jesus returning again in power. And so he writes so they can remember the factual basis upon which this claim of the Bible is made. So look at verse uh, 16 of Second Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, by the way, if you're going to start reading the Bible from scratch, I would, I would start with these books in the New Testament. Begin with these four um, uh, complementary accounts of the life of Jesus. And as you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that they all three of them record this moment that Peter is reflecting on here in this letter. This remarkable moment where Peter, James, and John uh, were alone with Jesus on a mountain around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus, uh, this real flesh and blood man, sort of his image got transfigured before them. It, it became sort of brilliantly light. Light sort of emanated from him. It was like a moment where the kind of the deity of Jesus was, was um, shining through his humanity. And they heard God speaking from heaven and declaring of this Jesus, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, if you had witnessed such a thing, I don't think you'd ever forget it. Peter did not forget it. That's why he's recalling it right here in this letter. Um, when he told them that Jesus would return again in glory and power, it was actually based on his personal experience of seeing something of the power and the glory of Jesus on that mountain in that brief moment. And so notice with me that what we've got in the New Testament is eyewitness testimony of historical events about Jesus. And it's also ear witness testimony. For he's saying we heard God. God is a speaking God. He's very, very able to speak in whatever language he wants to communicate to you. They heard God speak directly about Jesus, that he was his unique and personal son. And so, as he says in verse 16, uh, what the message they heard is not kind of fantastical tales. It's not a, a clever fairy tale. Peter says, we saw it. We heard it. He wrote it down so that we can also come to know the truth about God and his salvation through his son. What a treasure is the Bible. Uh, 
Science and history are very different things. Science is something you can keep repeating and checking. Something happens in history. How do you know something happens in history? You need to have accounts. They have to be written down. Go to the Martyrs Memorial in the graveyard. You'll discover how 18,000 people lost their lives in this city. Uh, not that long ago. People who didn't like uh, King Charles trying to decide that they, he was the, the, the previous King Charles, that he was the head of the church. Now, I, I didn't know that 18,000 people had died in this city until I read that memorial. It was written down in stone so that people who, who would forget would walk by and read it. And read. This is how you know what happens in history. Well, we have this extraordinary eyewitness, earwitness account of the life of Jesus written down so that we today can know God through his son, Jesus, and be saved by him. And verses 19 to 21, uh, Peter makes the point that we we can receive all of this as completely reliable as it was all prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. So yes, we acknowledge that human personalities, human authors wrote it. But the prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of a sailboat. Uh, sails at full stretch as the wind blows it along, driven along. So three amazing reasons why we should all read the Bible. Firstly, because the Bible shaped our Western civilization. And my friends, if we lose contact with it, I'm concerned about what direction our civilization will head. Secondly, because the Bible reveals God and his salvation through his Son. And thirdly, because the Bible reveals the future. So, here's my question. Will you do it? Are you reading the Bible? If not, will you start reading the Bible today? If you've not read the Bible, what holds you back? There's nothing to lose and potentially everything to gain. You don't have a Bible? Well, on the way out, we've, we'll, we'll give you one uh, one of the little books, uh, a, New, a New Testament book, Mark, one of the gospel accounts, will give you this for free if you promise to read it. It'll be at no cost to you. It costs us, but you can have it. There's quite a lot on the little desk as you immediately leave the doors. Please take one if you're going to go away and read it. We'd love you to begin reading that. And do you know what? Like in all the best menus at restaurants, when you ask what's good, and the waitress will say, it's all good here, honey. Uh, every book of the Bible, it's all good. And actually... You know, you, the, the king got a very fancy coronation Bible. You can actually pick up one for about nine quid. And you could chat to Keith on the way out. And I'm sure if you haven't got one, he can get you one for next week. You could get your own copy. A, a modern day translation. I mean, of course, if you can learn Hebrew and Greek, go to the original. But if not, why don't you go for a modern translation like the NIV, like we've got a few Bibles here, and begin to read it. Start in the Gospels. Read Acts. Uh, read some of the key letters, Romans, Ephesians. Just dive in there. It is all wonderful stuff. Keep coming back. You know what? Each Sunday, do you know what we're doing? We're reading the Bible. We're explaining the Bible. We're singing the Bible. We're praying the Bible. 
And if you want some help to know how to understand it, my guess is you're probably, well, well, let me tell you, you're in a room full of people who would say that they've heard God speaking to them through the Bible. That you're in a room of people whose lives are being transformed by Jesus as they're reading and obeying the Bible. And so you ask any of them, or come and ask me. I'm sure we'd be delighted to help you as you begin your journey of reading the Bible. I'm going to invite the band back up. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, because there is nothing more precious in the whole universe than you, what a treasure it is ours that we can have your word in our hands that reveals you to us, reveals your salvation to us through your Son. We thank you for this great treasure. Help us not to take it for granted because it's so easily available. Lord, help us not to waste our lives wondering trying to think things out for ourselves, but to hear what you've already revealed to us in your word. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts to show us your glory through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. But what you read in the Bible is a God of